John chapter 4 this morning. The Gospel of John chapter 4. I want to begin in verse 5. I suspect all of you have heard this story at least once. It's Jesus and this Samaritan woman at the well, at Jacob's well. Verse 5, Then cometh he, that's Jesus, to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. It was about the sixth hour. That would be noon for us. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat at their noon meal. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that you, being a Jew, asketh drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that saith unto thee, Give me to drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us this well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and cattle? Jesus answered and said, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. What a wonderful story. It's full of a lot of things to think about. First, we come to the Lady of Samaria, the Samaritans. You find the words Samaria and Samaritans sprinkled throughout Scripture. And as she said to Jesus, how is it that you're asking a drink of water to me who am a Samaritan because you Jews don't have anything to do with us? Now the reason for that was, in case you don't know about the Samaritans, when the kingdom of Israel was divided after the reign of Solomon, when Jeroboam and Rehoboam, two kings, and they split. The 10 tribes to the north were called Israel. The two tribes to the south were called Judah. And in the process of time, Israel to the north became very corrupt. There was never a good king that came out of there. And God calls the Assyrians, you read this in Isaiah 9 and 10, he calls the Assyrians to come down and to conquer these 10 tribes to the north and carry them away captive. And he left in the land when he carried them off, he left a few poor people and have scattered a few here and a few there, people that were not likely to get together and do this again, you know, become an opposition and a warring country thing. He just, he left them there and he took everybody else away into captivity, the Assyrian captivity. They were having trouble, the few of them that were left because of lions, beasts were coming in and making a lot of trouble and killing them. So they not only sent back inhabitants from other countries that they had conquered, the Assyrians, they sent back people from this nation and that nation, similar type people, and they all were sent to Israel, what they call Samaria then, and they began to live there. They brought their idols with them, their idol worship, and they were heathen people. 
And in the process of time, the Jews who were there intermingled with these people. They became kind of, a, as Matthew Henry in his, in his commentary called mongrel Jews. They were part Jewish and part heathen. They did, because of their teaching, they did hold to the five books of Moses as scripture, but they didn't hold to the prophets and they didn't have that in their heart. They didn't recognize Jerusalem as a city of God. They built their own temple at a Mount Gerizim. You remember Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, the Mount of Blessing and the Mount of Cursing? Well, they figured that was the best place to build their temple and the place the Mount of Blessing. So they worshiped there. They were different from the Jews. They caused trouble to the Jews when Nehemiah was building the wall. It was these Samaritans who caused so much trouble and spread rumors about Nehemiah and what he was doing. And they made the work difficult for them. So down through time and history, the Jews had nothing to do with these people. Even Jesus said, don't go into the way of the Samaritans. Pass their cities or don't pass through there. There was no love for these people. Now here's a picture though of Jesus. He's been on a journey. The Bible says he's wearied, he's tired, and he comes to this well and he wants a drink. And while he's there, here comes a Samaritan woman. And he said, as we would say, give me to drink. Would you give me something to drink? And she says, why in the world would you ask a drink of me seeing that I'm a Samaritan and you're a Jew? And he gave us this in verse which I want to speak about. He said, if thou knewest. Now, obviously, I'm going to talk about knowing. But Jesus puts an if there, and the if prefaces a promise that supersedes anything, any other promise in life. If thou knewest who it was that said unto thee, give me to drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. And we're not talking about water like in a faucet or natural H2O here. This is a figure of speech using water. Water quenches thirst. Well, the kind of water he had quenches something else. It's something spiritual, something that is not easily understood, not often understood by very many people. But she said, how can you get this water when you don't have anything to draw with? You don't have a vessel or a bucket. The well is deep. See, she was like so many people. Everything is in the natural realm. They take things they hear in the spiritual realm and they try to apply it naturally so they can understand it. Paul once wrote, he said, the natural man understandeth not the things of the spirit, for they are spiritually discerned. He cannot know them. He cannot know them. So let's look at that about knowing there because he said, if you knew the gift of God, didn't he begin there? If you knew the gift of God. Now the word gift is a common word. That is the word, English word gift. It's often translated with various other words. The word here is doria or Doria, D-O-R-E-A. There are other words translated gift. We know the word charisma. We get the charismatic gifts. There is Doma. You see apostles and prophets. Christ gave gifts, Doma, to the people. Then there is other words, Dosis and Dorema. Other words are translated gift. They all have to do with something that God gives. Here the word has to do with the nature and the character 
of the gift. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God. Remember Jesus said in John 3, 16, or the Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave. That he gave something that the world needs, but very few in the world have ever recognized that need. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would never perish, but they would have what he offers here, everlasting life. If you knew the gift, Jesus said, and who it is that says unto you, you would ask. You would really want it if you knew what I was talking about. Remember what Jesus said on the cross about what people were doing to him? He said, Father, forgive them. Why? Oh, they knew they were killing him. There was no problem with knowing how they felt about what they had heard about him and all the stuff that the leaders had been saying about him. And it was a good thing to get rid of this guy. They knew that. But Jesus said, they don't know who I am. And because they don't know who I am, they don't benefit from anything I have. See, Jesus is a gift, a special one of a kind gift. He is something that God graciously gave into this world to save sinners. That doesn't mean that everybody believes that. Almost everybody has heard about him. The most published writings in all of history is the Bible. There's more Bibles in the world than any, by far than any other book of any kind in the world. There's more Bible. I would say there's more Bibles in our Quran. That may be debatable today, I don't know. But this is one of the most published books and one of the least understood, least read books in the world. But people like to have it because they know that there's something in here that is special and eternal. They may not know what it is. They rely on somebody to sort of explain it to them because they really have a hard time reading it and wrestling with what it means. And therefore, they never really come to know who he is. They simply know about him. He walked on the water. He was buried in a tomb. He was born in a manger. He turned water into wine. He healed sick people. He raised the dead. He did a lot of things and we are very familiar with what he did and facts about him. But it does not appear that very many people ever really know not only who he was and what he offered, but what it means. See, we're talking about knowing him. Jesus said, if thou knewest. Now the word knewest, know, is E-I-D-O, I-D-O. This is a word that is used some 669 times in scripture. Now I'm saying all this to point out what the word I-D-O means. It's translated no, knowest, but most of the 47% of the use of this word, 669 times, almost half the uses of this word is see, seen, and saw, and so forth. Words that have to do with visual apprehension. Remember they came to uh, Thomas after the resurrection of Jesus and they said, Thomas, he's alive. He's alive. We just talked to him. We saw him. What did Thomas say? Except I see the prince in his hands and the place in his side, I will not believe. And thus we have today the idea of seeing is believing. 
That is, people say they will believe something if they see it. Well, that's crazy. You don't believe anything you see. You know what you see. You have to believe what you don't see. But the word for see in John 20, he said the word for see is ido. It's the same word that means no. Here's the picture of the word. You get this one word that's translated no or see, and this is what it is. To know something is as powerful as if you saw it. I see something, I am convinced of it, I am sure of it, I am absolutely certain of it. It is as though it's right there visibly in front of me and I see it, therefore I know it's there. Ido, it means to see as though it's in front of you or to know it as though you actually saw it. It's a knowing that influences the knower concerning the one or the object that is known. It is a knowing that has great influence on your life. Again, I've told this story way too many times about my college classes and going to college and taking tests. I've spent my share of time studying, memorizing more than anything, memorizing the right answers. Memorizing, you know, the, the professor said we're going to have a test on this such and such. And so you read that and you memorize what you think the right answers are. You try to commit to memory those, those words and you want your memory intact if you can find your way in the classroom and then find your pencil and whenever the test is given to you, your memory is fresh and you give, most of the time, the right answers. And amazingly, a week later, if you took that test a week later, you had failed it because you really didn't know it. Now, you passed the test and you got a pretty good grade because everybody thinks you, you're smart. Really, you got a good memory. You're able to memorize answers. You're able to know what the right answer is to something without having any more contact with it. You can tell a little child, don't touch that wood stove, it's hot. Now, you told him the truth, didn't you? And he heard your words. And they're old enough at the time you tell them that, they can figure out hot hurts. Stove hot, hot hurts. Don't touch stove, stove hurts. But then there's always this other thing that's in the back of so many people's mind. Well, how do you know? How do you know it'll hurt? Well, the source of my information is mom or dad or whoever told me. That's who I relate to the most. That's who I'm around the most. Well, they said it hurts, and you can really burn yourself if you touch that stove. However, I'd kind of like to find out for myself. The sign says, beware of dogs. I've always had a good relationship with dogs. I mean, I only had to kick them once, and they would leave. Beware of dog. Dogs in the yard. You know, looking at you, wagging his tail, you think, well, that's crazy. And you open the gate to go in there, and man, you're on his turf. And it's a war until you get out that gate. Did you read the side? Yeah, I read what it says. But it didn't look like that dog was bad. Now, I know that dog is bad. I'm going to tell everybody, don't go in that yard. That dog will eat you up. A kid who sneaks around, and finally, everybody's gone. He wants to touch that stove. Ah, and it's a war, it's a blister for two weeks, and it's, oh, and then you sit and rock, mom's got to quit what she's doing, dad wants to whale you, and there you sit, and your fingers all red and hurting. 
Now, what does that kid tell his friends? Don't touch that stove. <laughs> that stove will burn you up. Now, is there such a thing as knowing a fact about something without really knowing? I mean, again, going back to my classes in school, I took a lot of tests. I, I, if I took them today, I probably couldn't pronounce the words. But there's a lot of things that we've learned in this life by experience. And that experience has remained with us as a way of life. We don't touch hot things. We leave bad dogs alone. If it's foggy outside, you try your best to drive only as far as you accurately can stop your car in the fog, if you can. If I can only see 30 feet ahead, I gotta drive with what'll stop me to stop within 30 feet. And if somebody says, ah, don't worry about it, just believe God and go on, just And later on you say, that's not the good thing to do. That's not a good thing to do. Jesus said, if thou knewest, if thou knewest the gift of God and who it was who said it to thee, you would ask. Now here's one thing that we have learned in the scripture. In order to know God, that is to know in a way that affects your attitude and your life, your relationship with other people, how you manage your affairs, your private life when you're alone as well as your public life. The knowledge of God is designed when it comes into your heart, when God gives it, it's designed to change and affect your whole life. Jesus didn't say if you'd go to and get a little Sunday school quarterly and learn about me, you would receive living water. Thousands and millions of people have done that and they didn't get it. Somebody told them that's the way they could get it and they thought they had it, but there's this strange lack of something in their life. They're no different than they ever were. Nothing's changed. But there have been too many of us that know that when Christ comes into your life, offering you himself the gift of God, when he comes in, he brings with himself not only eternal life, but eternal life that begins to affect everything you do. Even if you do something wrong, you got immediate guilt. You got your conscience bears witness to what you're doing right or wrong because you know something. Knowledge can only come from God. You cannot, by sitting in a class or sitting in a church, know God. You can know about him by just simply being where facts and truths about him are taught. Jesus said of the Pharisees who probably knew more about God and the law than any known person. They were the teachers. There were lawyers and teachers and Pharisees and there were the Sadducees. There were all kinds of people who brought truth or light to the people or the word, the law. Jesus said in John chapter eight, he said, you not only don't know me, you don't know my father. For if you knew my father, you would know me. Now they knew all about him, that is God. They were always justifying what they did because they could quote the Bible. I've been around this much of my Christian life. People can justify what they do because they find a verse to do it with and they quote the Bible. And they do all these things by rote and by memorization, but their life is not tempered with the obvious presence of God. There's not this fruitfulness of his presence. You can't see Christ in him. You were an aggravating person 30 years ago and your reputation is still, you're an aggravating person. 
you were a touchy person, moody person 20 years ago when you got saved, you're still like that. You were ugly so many years ago as in the, in, with your attitude and you're still ugly and you haven't changed. You have never had this living water flowing in you yet. Because I do not believe it's possible for the eternal God to make his habitation in anybody's life without changing that life. When he comes in, he comes in to alter, to change, purge, cleanse, and refine. But only he can open your eyes and your heart to know who he is. Knowledge only comes by and through God. Listen to these words. In Jeremiah 24, 7, God says, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God and they shall return to me with their whole heart. But God only can give that. Listen, you can sit under the best, go to the best, listen to the best, and nobody can make you to know God except God himself. You can be distracted, you can know quote the Bible more than other people, be more learned than other people, and feel good about yourself, it never means you know God because you've memorized a lot of scripture. Knowing God changes lives. Listen to this in the same book of Jeremiah, chapter 31 and verse 33. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. But God alone can do that. In Ezekiel 36 and verse 26, he said, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Who will live like this? Let me read it again. Just the last, verse 27 of Ezekiel 36. God himself says, this is what he will do. This is what happens when he does it. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my statutes and do them. Why will people live like this? You think about it. The reason people's lives change is because God affects them. Because God sovereignly moves upon a man or a woman's life and he takes something out of you that couldn't work, and that could never make you spiritual, make you smart, but never make you spiritual. He takes something out of you that didn't work, and he puts something from heaven in you that does work, and he not only puts it in there, but he causes that in you to begin to cause you to walk in his ways, to have this new desire, this new urge, this quest, what was it as he said, as the deer panteth after the water brook, so my soul longeth after thee, my flesh longeth after thee in a dry and thirsty land. That's what God does to people. 
once our quest was to gain the world and to have fun and adventure and go places and, and do things and, and just enjoy it to the hilt, and then Christ comes in. The one who was at the well, speaking with this Samaritan woman, he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that said to you, give me water to drink, he would have given you living water. He would have given you something that inside of you will never stop flowing like a spring that bubbles and keeps going up. It never runs dry. There is nothing arid about God. His word, his promises are new every day. It never gets stale. A living water is never a swamp. God is able in the driest times and with the driest background and the driest person in here, he can make a spring of living water bubble up in you until you're always fresh. There's always something glorious and good about what comes out of you, and people know it. You quit doing things you once did. You have a different attitude about things. You no longer count everything you have to be such a thing to be so concerned about and trying to get more of it. You begin to think, look, it all belongs to God. He gives, the Lord can take it, he can bring it, he can add to you, he can ask you to give it all away, he can do whatever he wants. And you're willing to do it joyfully with contentment? Why, how could this be? Well, it's because God inside of you has done something. Listen to these words in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. For God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, which is in the face of Jesus. Again, it only comes from God. God who has shined who commanded the light in the beginning of creation to shine out of darkness is the same God who has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's something God does. If that's ever happened to you here this morning, you have much to be thankful for, great reasons to praise the Lord because God is changing your life. Don't we used to sing a song like that? He's changing me. Well, we used to. Somebody sang one like that or something. I'm not going to get into you all singing this morning. But I'm talking about the effect of knowing God. Let me ask you a question. How can you really know? Is there a verse in the Bible that we could put our finger on and says, here's how you exactly know if you know God. A man who knows has this affected relationship with God. A man who knows God, it says he knows God because of what? Well, I've got a verse for you that says that, exactly that, so that no question about what it means to know God. First John chapter two, and I want you to turn to that. First John chapter two, because it begins by saying, and hereby know we God. Hereby, by this. We do know that we know him. What is it? Hereby. And hereby, we do know that we know him. If. If what? If we keep his commandments. 
What does keep his commandments mean to you? How would you explain to an inquisitive person, what does it mean to keep his command? Well, that's easy to answer. It means you do what he says. Or you would be faithful. Is that right? You would live faithfully. If I'm a doer of the word and not just a hearer only, I'm essentially walking by faith. I'm taking him at his word, counting on what he said to be true and walking as though it's true. If he said he will, he will. If he said he could, he can. If he said he did, then he's, it's done. How do you know that? Because he said so. But that kind of knowledge is not in everybody, and we all know that. Everybody in this room knows that that's true. A lot of people know what he said is true, but there's this uncertainty about the reality of it really working for you, and therefore you hold back. I'm just not sure. And yet, to quote the Bible, if you knew God, you would just go on. You know that he can't fail. You know that he can't deny himself. He cannot say one thing and do something else. If he said something is so, if he said all the promises are yes, and all the promises amen, then they are. Now, to have him affect you in such a way that you're just willing to do that. Everybody talks about you. They're against you. They think you're nuts and crazy, some kind of a cult. But you made a decision. I'm going to walk this way. Because you see, the next verse says, in verse 4, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments. What does it say? He is a liar, and the truth isn't in him. You know why a lot of people have an indifferent attitude about spiritual things? is because the truth is not in them. Truth does not govern, guide, manipulate, motivate the life. They know about truth, but it doesn't affect them. Remember Jeremiah spoke of those. He said, you are unto these people as one who has a very lovely song. You play an instrument well. They hear the sound of your words, but they will not do them. They love to hear what you have to say. They're not willing to do what you said because they're more interested in you than about what you said. Now, this is modern religion. People know that people like personalities. Personalities know that they have an appeal to people who come to hear how they say things in the Bible and how they skillfully are able to put a message together. And you go, man, that was a good sermon. But it doesn't change your life. You get all enamored with the person. And the next thing you know, the person's gone, the church dies. Why? Because it's all about a person. It wasn't about Christ. It's all about somebody else. And it's not about Jesus. One of the most outstanding verses in the Bible about the importance of knowing was in John 17 and verse 3. If you go back there, it'd be good for you to read it. John 17, 3. John wrote, Hereby we know that we know him because we keep his commandments. And Jesus said this himself in red letter, red writing in your Bible. And this is eternal life. Verse 3. What is eternal life? What is living water? What is meant by living water? It's eternal life, isn't it? 
And how does it come? It's by knowing. Knowing, in other words, relating to God and knowing God is the river that flows from God right into your heart and it flows right out of you as a bubbling spring of living fresh water. This, he said, is eternal life that they may what? That they may know God. Somebody says, well, I have eternal life because I can tell you a lot of facts about him. It doesn't mean you know him. My brother was a baseball player. One time years ago, I got to go sit in a dugout of all places in New York. And I sat in a dugout at Yankee Stadium. And I'm sitting in the dugout with, I don't know, this so many years ago, y'all wouldn't know who I was talking about. But at the time, they would see their pictures all over newspapers and Sports Illustrated magazines a lot. And, and everybody's probably heard of Mickey Mantle or some of that. But yeah, I'm sitting in the dugout and I'm being introduced a lot. And in the dressing room back there and being introduced to this one, you know, I'm with my brother and hi, how are you? Let me ask you a question. Do I know these guys? Well, I just met them, didn't I? You don't know them, do you? I sat in the dugout and talked to some of them, carried on a conversation with the one guy in particular. And I can go out and say, yeah, I met, yeah, I know him. No, you don't. You know who he is. You've been introduced to him, but you don't have a relationship with him. You don't spend time with him, do you? You don't know his manner. You don't know what he likes and doesn't like. In fact, you're sort of impervious to what he really likes because you live your own life the way you want to and you don't really correct a lot of faults in your life because, well, you really don't relate to somebody who doesn't want you to do that. Oh, you've met him? You went forward, held your hand up. You even got baptized. So you know who he is. But if you don't spend much time with him, and you don't relate to him, trust me, you don't know him. You know who he is. You know what he's done. You know the facts of his life. He was raised from the dead. He is coming back. But you don't know him. You just simply know a lot about him, and a lot of people are hoping that what I know will get me to heaven because I do go to church. I preach sermons. I've been on a missionary trip. I have helped a lot of people. I've mentored kids. Won't that get me to heaven? No. God wants to change your life so that you represent him in this world as one who is yielded and fully given to him. People will hate you for that. You won't be popular. You won't be accepted anymore. Because the effect of his life on you, Jesus said, will cause the world to hate you. They hated him in. Same devils in the world today that was in. The devil doesn't age. He's still here. But you've got to know him. You can meet him. That's one thing. But you've got to know him. And if you don't know him, well, what does he say in John 17, 3? If you don't know him, then you don't have what? Is that fair for me to say that? Well, of course it is because Jesus said it. If you don't know him like he meant no, K-N-O-W, then you really don't have eternal life. You're a good person. You're a nice person. You're a good mother. You're a good daddy, a good provider. You may be a good preacher. But if you don't know him, if he is not your life, if he's not the one who makes you stop saying things, leave that person alone, don't aggravate that woman anymore, if he's not the one who is changing you to be the way he would be, then you don't know him. He wants everything. It's what the message we used to hear of total 
commitment was all about. Total commitment. Now, why is it then that so many people don't know him? Turn to Luke 11. Here's why a lot of people, I believe, really don't know Jesus. They know about Jesus. He's the subject of sermons. His name is on church buildings. Tracks, books, and movies are made about him. And yet a lot of people don't know him. Too many people don't. Luke 11, verse 52. These are solemn words this morning in verse 52. These are solemn words. Because they are applicable right now in the United States, in the church in the United States, as well as the rest of the globe. These words, listen. Woe unto you lawyers. What if I said preachers, leaders in the church, teachers, parents, friends, people with religious spirits that are twisted in what they know, whoever it is, whoever is talking to you and you're listening to. Woe unto you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. The thing that Jesus said you got to have. You entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in, you hindered. What is the key of knowledge? Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, he said, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. And that's true today. I believe there are a lot of leaders in religious systems and religious institutions around America and probably around the world who have learned from those in America that there are just some things that you should not do. Charismatic gifts are always controversial. People always malign you because of that. So don't do that. Stay away from all that stuff. And all of the stuff about dancing or clapping your hands or shouting or washing feet or used to be more than so wearing a head covering, which is what the Bible teaches. But a lot of people, I ain't going to do that either. But anyway, anyway, there's a lot of things that have been said, a lot of things that have been done that people just don't want to do because it's controversial. And so not only do the preachers either ignore teaching on it or if they're asked questions about it, you try to make it a gray area. Make it an option. You can do that if you want to. I've been married five times. The fifth one wasn't any good. How about a number six? You think it's all right? Well, boy, if I say no, I'm going to deal with half the church. Well, yeah, if you don't like it, yeah, well, you know, oh, Lord. Yeah, well, do whatever you believe you ought to do. Just seek the Lord. If number six seems to be a, a pretty good deal, then just buy into it. It's your business, not ours. See, that way I can stay out of the conflict of, of a very difficult subject. But people get snared, folks. They get snared. They leave stuff out of their life. They begin to dress any way they want to, talk any way they want to, watch trash, have as friends people that talk you out of your Christian faith because you no longer have your testimony around them for fear they might be offended, so they're really in control of your life. 
And somebody told you, well, you know, you got to be all things to all people. The Bible says that. Paul said that. But that's not what he meant. He didn't mean to hide your light under a bushel. But if somebody begins teaching you these things, next thing you know, instead of you being loyal and having an allegiance to Jesus Christ before anybody or anything, you love him more than anything. You begin to back away from anything and everything that tarnishes who you are or who you think you are. And you're such a refined, diligent soul that you wouldn't want people to look down upon you because you're a part of that. And the preacher talks you the, to you that way and you get talked out of it. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do that. A lot of people have taught people that it's not necessary to be in attendance. It's not necessary that you give. It's not necessary to do anything you don't want to do. You know, Jesus doesn't heal today like he did back then. Those things have passed away. Didn't you know that? Did you know that, that when the church started, we no longer need gifts of the Spirit? That God has given medicine and doctors to the church today to heal the sick, and we don't need to pray over people anymore. Well, don't we have churches sponsoring hospitals? Methodist, General, Baptist, General, Jewish, this, Lutheran, that. They have hospitals. They churches have hospitals. Some churches have insurance companies so that the people who can't believe God can have something left over when they die. Who taught them that? Who has failed to teach for generations people that it doesn't have to be like that and the things you're seeing out there called a part of religion are not true? Who taught us it was true? Who taught my parents? Who taught my parents, parents to live a life that was way less than what God wanted for them. Who taught them that? Somebody did. Maybe it was their parents. Maybe it was an uncle. Maybe it was a preacher in a little country church that, that didn't want people to grow and, and be refined. Maybe it was a brother or a sister, or some educated soul in one of these institutions of higher learning today that have a superior understanding of manhood. Hogwash. There is nothing superior to the knowledge of God. Zero. Nothing. Well, while a man who knows God may look to be a fool, he has eternal life lodged within his heart. But Jesus said, woe unto you, you lawyers. You have taken away the key of knowledge. You teachers, you have been explaining to people how they should live and what Christianity is all about. You've taken away the key of knowledge. Paul once wrote, he said, if somebody comes to you and preaches another Jesus, remember that? First Corinthians 11. Or you receive a different gospel. Where do you get a different gospel? They're going to say the words that are in this one here, but they're going to explain it away or take away the meaning of it so that it doesn't affect you. Remember those words that Jesus said once in Matthew 15? The Pharisees had said to Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat after the tradition of the elders? And Jesus came back and he said these words. He said, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your traditions. What did these Pharisees do? Did they not tell people in some cases, well, now we know the law says this, but traditionally this is the way it works. 
And they made what God specifically said to be inferior to their ideas or their traditions. Jesus said, the Bible says, honor your mother and your father. But you have taken the money that you have earned and, and accumulated, and you don't want to give it to anybody, so you dedicate it to God. You say, it is Corban. It is dedicated to God. I would love to help my parents, but I can't. I gave it to God. It's in a heavenly trust fund. You know what Jesus said? He said, you hypocrites. You, by your traditions, have made the word of God vain. You have made it mean nothing. Look at the multitudes of people today who don't mind cussing or drinking or sleeping around or living together or watching trash and doing everything that violates every clean thing that God said. They do that and the preacher and the church doesn't mind. He said, you have taken away the key of knowledge. They're not learning anything. Their lives are not being affected by this word. You've either mistaught them or you've misled them. But whatever you've done, you have perverted the gospel. You have corrupted the gospel. You've made it obscure to where people, they don't know what it says. They don't know what it means. They didn't go there to be taught. They went there to hear that Sunday sermon from this refined, refreshing pastor. But as far as the effect of this word, I don't know much about it. We don't go in for that teaching stuff much here. We're just loving Jesus here. He said, you've made the word of God of no effect. Let me quote to you a few things in the New Testament about what can happen to you. Here in Shelbyville Christian Assembly, if you're not careful, if I'm not careful, didn't Jesus say, take heed you that stand lest? Is that possible? Well, it is possible. Paul said in Colossians 2, 8, beware lest any man spoil you, that is rob and take away from you, spoil you through philosophy and vain traditions or vain deceit. Deceit is a misleading story, misleading statement, a corruption of what should have been this way. You corrupt it and become deceitful. And because it's deceitful, you take it as a doctrine, but it's vain. That is, it's useless because God doesn't honor it and it doesn't work. I go to church, I read my Bible, I do what it says, but nothing works for me. Why should it? God said it wouldn't. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Remember 1 Timothy 4, run, in the latter days, the Spirit speaketh expressly that some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Would it not be the devil's object and goal to rob you of the truth by having somebody corrupt the truth or malign the truth or pervert the truth so that what you know is not the way you should know it? And when it doesn't work for you and you try to use that as something you're believing God for, but this corrupted word you have doesn't work because God isn't going to honor corruption. Then you lose interest in this faith stuff and you fall back on a man-made doctrine that says, well, this is the way it is and what will be, will be. Which leads to the final prayer of if it be thy will. They don't know his will. It's been changed. It's been corrupted. 
Again, Jesus doesn't do what he did. The works he did, you're not going to do. All that's changed. It's all changed by today's doctrines. It's all today about making a lot of noise, listening to worthless music, just loud, banging, crazy music with hair's got so much junk on it looks like if you fell on top of them, you'd stab you to death. <laughs> and all this crazy, stupid designs of man to attract the attention of our youth. It's all about feelings. I hope you all can see this. It's all about emotion. This is what's important, man. It's just how you feel about it. I just love Jesus. Woo! But what usefulness is there in all of that if you are unable to lead a sinner to Christ? Living water. The only worthwhile gift that has ever existed is Christ. Every good thing that ever follows him comes from him. You know what he said in James 1.17? Every good and perfect gift cometh down from above from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness or changing. But he's first. He's first. And he's the one we should be concerned with. Listen to what Paul said again, evil men and seducers in the last days, 2 Timothy 3. He said, evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Who are they going to deceive? The people that listen to them. This is in a church context. We know the world's full of deceivers, but in the context of Christianity, there will be imposters and deceivers in the last days who will wax or become worse and even worse, deceiving people as well as being deceived. And people will follow them. They will follow all of this stuff. Or listen to this verse. 2 Corinthians 2, 17. We are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God, so speak we Christ in sincerity. There's one thing that is valuable to the nth degree. And that is to desire the sincere milk of the word. 1 Peter 2.2. 2. The sincere milk of the word. That word sincere, adolos, means without mixture, without man's tales, without man's corruption. A clear and a clean word. I spoke to you a while ago, the milk of the word, when I said, if a man knows God, he will walk in truth. If you don't walk in truth, you don't know God. I didn't have to take away the sting of that for those it hurts. I didn't try to add to the joy of that for anybody that there. You're talking about me. Well, you should be humble. Just say what it says. I got to live with the same thing that you do. And it's what he said. Paul wrote that we should henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. How many times in the, while we're still on this earth, how many times will we read verses like this about the, the continuous opposition to what you believe that lurks constantly and comes at you, comes at you through your friends, your teachers in school, educators, parents, 
friends, neighbors, everybody always, when you're really on the right track, there's always somebody trying to get you off of it. A price you can't afford to pay. It costs you too much, it's too far, too hot, too slow, too young, too old, too something. Who's telling you that? Well, somebody is because the devil is a master deceiver trying to talk people out of their faith and out of their walk with the Lord. Just at this, Paul wrote to the Galatians. He said, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ into another gospel. He said, you all in, in chapter three of Galatians, he said, you were running well. Remember this phrase, oh foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Is that still possible? Who are these people that are bewitching people, misleading people and maligning people? If I mentioned their names, I would be labeled as a troublemaker, an unloving person. I crossed this bridge a long, long time ago. I'm not concerned about what the world thinks anymore. I'm only concerned about one group of people. And to speak the truth in love sometimes is costly, but it will cause the devil to lose his grip on a lot of people's lives. Amen. Amen. Paul said in Galatians 1, 6, he said, I, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that calls you into the grace of Christ, another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed, anathema. As we have said before, say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. I wonder what people would say about him if he made that statement today. Well, you know what they would say. It would be a great pressure on him not to talk like that because nobody's talking like that today. Everybody wants to be in unison and harmony. And yet you got these people falling away and giving up the faith, turning their hearts away from God. The key of knowledge that was taken away from God's people is a pure word. Knowledge comes that way. God doesn't use Reader's Digest to quicken your faith. He doesn't use somebody's wonderful life story to quicken your faith as much as he uses his word. And God forbid that we add anything to it. We must ourselves live by it. We must stand on it simply. And we must say, let God be God and let everything else be a lie. And if we lose all of our friends and the world hates us, we know that first of all, it hated Christ before it hated us. For the word we're standing on is his word. Would you go back to John 4? Jesus said, Again in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, if you get clear in your mind and you make the connection, the first thing he said you would do is you would ask, didn't he? You would ask. Well, everybody asks. Everybody asks or prays, hoping it'll work. Christians should pray, so let's try prayer. Sometimes a bumper sticker probably says, try prayer. 
well, nothing else is working. Let's try that. But you have to understand that when it comes to asking, it is necessary that you believe before you ask. Because God is not moved by sweat and labor in a prayer room. It's not who can stand there and yell at God the longest who's going to get an answer. The answer comes because you believe. You've got to believe before you ask. Mark 11, y'all remember Mark 11 and what's that verse? 20 what? 24, yeah. What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe what? Believe that you have received it. You mean I'm supposed to believe when I get down to pray, I'm supposed to believe before I even start praying, I'm supposed to believe that it's mine? Yes. Your prayer is simply you connecting with God. As he said, when you pray, believe you have received it. And he said, and you shall have it. Now, I don't have to tell you how few people believe this. How can this be? Well, it, it can be because he said it. What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe you have received it. And God said, you shall have it. If you knew the gift of God and who it was that says unto you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. You got to ask, but your asking is futile. It is a waste of time if you don't believe when you pray. And that's not easy because that only comes from God. It comes through his word. Remember James chapter one? If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives. Who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not. But let him ask in faith without wavering. That means without being unsure about it, not being, you know, tossed this way. When you ask, don't be like that because he said, let not that man think. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything from God. How would that preach today? How would that go over in a big church? Like a flying cow? If any man lack whatever, ask God. He's a giving God. He gives liberally and he doesn't upbraid you for asking. You don't have to qualify except you're his. You don't have to be deep in the Lord to ask for anything. You can be a brand new Christian and you have as much right to stand at the throne as the oldest saint you've ever known does. God is no respecter of persons. You come to him because he has shown you that he is the supplier of half your needs. Thank you. All of your needs. In fact, he said you come boldly to the throne of grace that you may find grace to help in time of need. It's there. But the one condition that has to bring you there and without it, you get nothing. You got to believe that when you ask him for something that you have received it. You can't see it. He didn't say you'd feel better. He didn't say you'd look better. He didn't say your mother, daddy, or your child would come home, get saved or get out of jail. He just said, when you pray, believe. You don't know, folks, I don't either, a handful of people anywhere in this world who believes this. They all know about it. They've read it. They can quote it. They don't believe it. 
the first sign of a problem. They're off crying and whining and on the phone talking to somebody. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Well, we've been teaching for 28 years. God hasn't kept us all here because we're lying to each other. And we're certainly not all doing well because we're all practicing what this Bible says. A lot of people aren't. But we keep pounding this thing in to all beef, patties, sausages, cheese, pickles, onions on sesame seed bun. Keep saying it. You'll get it. Just keep your heart in there. I feel sorry for people who don't see their need to be here. I feel sorry for them because they're leaving out essential things in their life. I don't care about your job. I don't care about your home needs. I don't care about your fishing trips or anything else. This is where you should be when the door is open. If you're in town, of course. If you're not on a vacation or something, I know that. How in the world do you ever have so much of this you don't need no more? When you pray, believe. When you pray, believe. God, give us the grace. Favor us with a deep sense of conviction about that. So that I quit fearing everything that people are fearing. I quit worrying about all these things because you've already said whatever I desire, ask and you'll give it to me. Is it healing? Is it a job? Is it a proper wife, husband? Is it a fixed husband, fixed wife? Is it saved children? Ask. Ask. Quit crying and ask. Well, this old house is a bit. Well, ask. My old dog, ask. God is waiting. His arms are extended to us. He's given us his word. Is it because we're not sure that he'll do what he said? Do we not know him? Or do we just come boldly to the throne of grace and say, I'm sorry, I'm here again. You're not going to say that to God. He can wave the whole world into his throne at one time and be single with each one of us because he's God. But if you ask, you must ask believing. If you believe you have received it, you talk like it, you act like it. That's how you know. The guy goes out and buys him a winch, saves up enough money and buys him a nice winch. His wife says, what are we going to do with the winch? He says, I'm going to put it on my new truck. Surely you haven't done that. Where's your truck at? He said, I have no idea. Right here. She's not a believer yet. She's a church member. She says, what? She said, I have believed God for a new truck. I'm so sure he's going to do it, and I want a winch on it so I can get you out of the ditch down the road. So I have bought the winch because I could afford the winch. He's going to bring me the truck. And so she prays. Father, I promise what's wrong with my man, but he has lost his mind. I've been there, not with her, but with other people. There's strange ways that people that believe God live. The things you're trusting God for tomorrow, and remember, he's already in your tomorrows. And you're expecting today, if it doesn't work, it might be here tomorrow. I've gone to the post office many times in a time of need and said, praise God. Open it up, and it was nothing in there. And I said, praise God. He's not through. Empty box today doesn't mean empty box tomorrow. Or this afternoon, yeah. 
Remember that extinct bird could fly from somewhere. Drop a bag of whatever on your doorstep and pay your bills. Faith without works is dead. Finally, he said, not only would you ask, he said, if you knew, you would ask. Now, in finishing that verse, are y'all back at John 4? Verse 11. The woman saith unto him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and none of us did either. We not only did not have a bucket, a vessel, a cup, or a pail, we didn't have a rope to tie around it to drop it down in the well. She said, that's a deep well. That's a deep well, and you don't even have anything to get down in it. How is it then that you're going to give me living water and you don't have anything? I'm glad to tell you this morning we do have a bucket. I call my bucket joy. I got a bucket named joy. Can I show you where I found it? It wasn't at the Peddler's Mall. Wasn't a good deal out at the flea market. Wasn't a super sale over at the big mall wart. You know where I found it? In the middle of the Bible. Open to the middle of the Bible. Find Isaiah chapter 12. Oh, this is so good. Actually, the whole chapter. I ought to read the whole chapter. It's a real long chapter, but I ought to read the whole thing, all six verses. Listen to this. This is right in what we're talking about. This is how you get it. You don't have a bucket. None of us had a bucket. We didn't even have a rope to put a bucket on, let alone see if it's long enough rope to get down that well. We just knew that something was down there that we need. We had no way, humanly speaking, to get it. But, verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he also is become my salvation. Therefore with joy shall I draw water out of the wells of salvation. Woo, joy. What's joy look like? <laughs> well, look in the mirror. Turn your frown upside down. That'd be joy. Joy is an expression, I think, it's an indication of the presence of God. Happiness is an indication of something good that happened to you. But joy is something in your heart that is all about God. He says, with joy will I draw waters out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall you say, praise the Lord. Call upon his name. Declare his doings among the people. Make mention that his name is exalted. That's what you do because of that joy. Sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of, Sheba, of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. With joy. Well, I want to close with that and just quote to you one verse of Scripture from the New Testament. Jesus said this. This is an invitation to you. If there's anybody here this morning, and we don't preach along these lines every week, but you need to occasionally. If there's anybody in this room this morning, you've never connected with Jesus Christ. 
You've been in this situation, in this atmosphere your whole life. Got good parents, good friends, but your heart convicts you, your heart condemns you, your heart rails against you because you're not sincere, you're not honest, and you're not a Christian, and you know you're not. You know you're not. Didn't say you were a bad, ugly person, but sadly, if you died today, you'd perish. But there's hope. For somebody this morning has walked into your life and stood in your presence, not caring that you were a lost sinner, not even a Samaritan. He spent two days with these Samaritans and many were saved. He comes to you. And he offers himself to you as the gift of God. He can change your life. Revelation 21, 5, and he said to me, it is done. Jesus said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. 22, 17, and the spirit of the bride say, come. And let him that hear it say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. He offers it this morning. It belongs to you. It's yours. Amen. Would you bow your head? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we are grateful this morning for our salvation. We're grateful this morning that you have saved us. We're grateful for the little bit of knowledge that we do have. Sometimes it seems like we don't know anything, Lord. Sometimes it seems like we're just racing against nothing. But I pray in the name of Jesus that you would make your word fresh. That you would come to us as we sing in your word. That you would come to us like the rain, like the spring rain that waters the earth. That you would come to us. We're a parched and arid place. That you would rain, you rain upon us. You would let us begin to experience eternal life daily. Having a living faith. Walking in a light that outshines any other light. I know this morning, Heavenly Father, there are people here in this room that are not Christians. I know that. They've never made that journey. They've never had whatever it takes to say to Jesus, I want to be saved. I want to repent of my sins. I am a sinner. But maybe today, Lord, is that day for somebody. And perhaps today you've you want to bring them to yourself. I ask that you would do that. And that you would open their heart and their eyes to see the wondrous things that you've laid up in store for those that love you. I ask you to bless these people this morning with all of that in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.